Um, yes, Liz, you do have a wife. Yes, Kenzie's the sick one this week. However, they are hoping to make an appearance at lunchtime. So as long as you avoid Kenzie, all's good. But Sarah realised she hasn't been here since the middle of April on a Sunday morning, and she misses you. Anyway, we're about to start a new book. We're starting to go through the book of Exodus. Um, we won't be going entirely at the normal sort of pace we normally do. For those who are worried, thinking, oh no, there's heaps of chapters at the end giving instructions how to build the tabernacle. This is going to drag on. As we get towards the end, there are some weeks where we actually cover five whole chapters. So if you're worried that that's going to drag on at the end, you'll find it goes at a reasonable, reasonably sort of slowish at the beginning, but at the end will just go boom and get it out of there. Okay, let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father... Uh, We thank you that uh, we can come together this morning as people who can celebrate and give you thanks that you have provided Jesus Christ to be our saviour. That, Lord, that we were formerly uh, dead in our sins, as we've heard read, without hope. Yet, while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly to bring us to God. We thank you for how you have been and worked as a saving God and we've seen that throughout history but we see its ultimate fulfilment in what Jesus has done on the cross on our behalf Lord help us to learn from your word may we be changed by as we hear your voice to us this morning Uh, fill us with your spirit that we might hear and respond appropriately to you and your word we ask in Jesus name amen Now, during the week, I was having a discussion with someone and just in the conversation, I mentioned that come Tuesday night, I was finally allowed to return back to my own bed. Uh, Because I was unwell and Sarah was worried um, she didn't want to get it, and basically no one would want to get it, and she didn't want the kids to get it, I got kicked out to the spare room. Now, someone said to me when I said that, they said, oh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? You're the sick one and you get kicked out of your own bed. Now... There's probably various different perspectives you could have on that situation and it might depend on whether or not you're the sort of person who's optimistic and tends to look at the positive sides of things or if you're more likely to look at the negative side of things. Like if you're really optimistic, you might look at it and think, how good's that? You're in a bed, you've got it all to yourself, not just the side 10%, you've got all of the blankets, you haven't got a little baby in there crying and doing things throughout the night. I mean, that could be the positive way of looking at it. Or you could take the negative sense of, all well, the reasons why you're there is because you are really, really sick. And that wasn't much fun. I can guarantee you I won't give you any details. You don't need details. But I think it's safe to say that pretty much every situation we find ourselves in, there will be different perspectives that we can look at it. We might see all of the negative stuff, And we might only see the negative stuff and miss out on all of the good stuff that's there amongst it. And I think Exodus chapter 1 provides us a very fine example of a scenario very much like that. Today is the first in our series in the book of Exodus. And the word Exodus just comes from a Greek word meaning departure. Because the central event in the book of Exodus is when God takes his people out of Egypt to make them a people for his own. And so that's where the the name of the book comes from. Dating-wise, as in the date of the the events, there tends to be two different schools of thought. 
And the reason why there's a little bit of difference in terms of how people approach that is because there's not much in terms of historical markers within the book. Like it refers to the pharaohs and things like that, but it never tells you which ones. Like say, so different people would say the Exodus occurred in like around about 1446 BC, because when you get to First Kings 6 verse 1, it says 480 years after the Exodus in the fourth year of Solomon, and that was 966, so you do the maths and you come up with the other figure. But then from the contents of Exodus itself, in Exodus 1 and 11, it talks about building the city of Ramses, which if it happened under Ramses II, sort of 1279 to 1213. So that's why people go in two different camps. But at the end of that, it really doesn't matter. We know these are events that actually did happen. When we're reading through the book of Exodus, we're not looking, reading through the book of Exodus to pinpoint the exact date that they happened. We're reading through the book of Exodus to hear the voice of God speaking directly to us. It is the second book in the Bible, second book in the Old Testament. And the first five books are written written by, by Moses. Now, some people would call Exodus sort of like the sequel to Genesis, almost like a, I don't know what the equivalent of a trilogy when it's five. Anyone got a word for that? Pentalogy, Pentalogy I'll work with that. Because you, know, you could also say that even Exodus isn't a complete story. There's, there's, the, there's Numbers and Leviticus and things that happen beyond that as well. But there's a lot that was anticipated in the book of Genesis that are yet to come to fruition. Particularly some of the promises that are given to Abraham, you're thinking, these are the things that God has promised to the people, yet a lot of them are yet to actually come out to happen. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, the initial promises to Abraham. Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless, bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're not going to go through all of them, but also again in Genesis 17. Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's a lot of promises in those chapters of Genesis, and when you get to the end of the book of Genesis, a lot of those haven't really come to fruition. Now there's promises that he's going to have multitudes of offspring. Elsewhere he speaks about, he looks up to the stars and says, as many as the stars are, so will be your offspring. But when you get to the end of the book of Genesis, they're really not particularly large in number at all. Talking about making them into a nation, giving them a land, a time when God would be their God and who would dwell amongst them. Yet by the end of Genesis, they're not overly fruitful. They're not established as a nation. They're not in the land. And there isn't that provision of God dwelling amongst them. But by the time you get through the end of the book of Exodus... We see that they were abundantly fruitful. That these promises that they would have multiple offsprings is starting to come to fruition. We see them being taken out and formed as a nation. We see provisions being made for God to dwell amongst them. 
The only thing they're waiting for is that they would enter into that land by the end of the book of Exodus. But the book has some of the real key key themes of the Old Testament. You've got, in some very familiar stories, you've got the birth of Moses. You've got the Passover. You've got the plagues. You've got the actual exodus. You've got the giving of the law. The instructions for the building of the tabernacle so God can dwell amongst his people. Often Genesis gets called the gospel of the Old Testament because at the very heart of it is that message of a God who chooses to graciously bring a people out of slavery to be his own people. But it's more than just that. Even the Jesus and the New Testament authors pick up on the, the language of, of Exodus and apply them to Christ. We see in Corinthians the, the idea of Jesus being described as our Passover lamb. We see the gospel writers take up the quote from Hosea 11.1. 1, it says, out of Egypt I, I called my son, which was in Hosea was speaking of the nation of Israel. But the gospel writers pick it up and say the fulfillment of that was Christ. In the book of Jude, it goes even so far to say that it was Jesus who rescued and delivered them out of Egypt. In Jesus' own word in Luke chapter 9, speaks of his death and resurrection as the fulfillment of the exodus. Now eight days after these things, he took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared and spoke of his departure, Greek word exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So we see the initial exodus in the book of Exodus, where God saves a people out of slavery to be his own people. And Jesus uses that same language to speak of his death and resurrection and the salvation that it would accomplish. So when we're looking at this book of Exodus, we're not just looking at some old, outdated book that's got only got anything to do with Jews from ages and ages ago. This is very relevant. We see the New Testament authors and Jesus pick up on this saying, the gospel is here in the book of Exodus. Or when you see the way Paul, as he looks back in 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the events of Exodus, says this, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And goes that step further in verse 11, just a few verses later. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul tells us that these things are not only useful, not only are they they centered around Christ and pointing to Christ, but these things were written down for our instruction. So as we launch into the book of Exodus, we need to remember these are not something ages ago, got nothing to do with us. These things were written for our instruction. Now previously I did say Exodus is like a sequel to Genesis. And you'll see some very strong ties between the wording and particular parts of Genesis and Exodus. For example, when you begin the book of Exodus, you'll notice this phrase about all the sons of Jacob who came into Egypt and the total number was 70. We see that tied back to Genesis 46, where we see almost exactly the same wording. All the persons belonging to Jacob came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 
66 persons in all, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So it's making that tie of this is it, they've entered into Egypt, and now Exodus is picking up. Now what happens next? Now a few generations have passed on since the promises were given to Abraham that he'd be a father of a multitude, but at this point in time they're pretty light on. It says there are 70 of them there dwelling in the land. But poor old Joseph, and Joseph we know the one was, the one was left in the pit by his brothers, abandoned, hoped that he would die, eventually he ends up becoming the prince of Egypt, the second highest person in the land. Now his brothers who had no idea that this had happened, when the famine comes in the land, they go to Egypt and discover that Joseph was there and serving as prince. But verses 6 and 7 is where you see the transition between Jacob and his descendants and his, and his direct kids and what happens beyond that. In verses 6 and 7, Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiply and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So here's what's taking on in the very next chapter. Now Joseph, Jacob and all their sons and all that generation there died. Now what happens next? It tells us that all, all of them were exceedingly fruitful. We notice the language there of even the creation mandate of Genesis 121 to be fruitful and multiply. We also see the ongoing fulfillment of what God had already promised to Abraham, that he would have a multitude of of offspring. And we see here that in the land, even though they're not in the promised land, even though they're in Egypt under under a foreign leader, God is still fulfilling his promises to Abraham. They're starting to unfold. Things are really starting to boom for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So much so that Pharaoh, or the king of Egypt, is actually quite concerned about it. Look here in verses 8 to 14. In verse 8, we're told, the king didn't know Joseph. Now, I don't know if he just means that he had no idea that Joseph ever was the the second highest in the land, or if he's just ignoring him. But remember, he was there in the second highest position in the land, and because of that, he was able to deal graciously and favourably with the people of his own descent. But now there is a king in place who has no ties, no connection and no reason to show grace or favour towards the people of Israel. Matter of fact, their fruitfulness and the strength which they have gained, he sees as being a national threat to their security. Look at in verses 9 and 10. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So he's got two big concerns there. They're growing large in numbers. They're strong and they're mighty. In the event of war, because they've got no official ties to Egypt, they might actually side with the enemies and might bring, bring down the Egyptians. So he's worried about the state of the Egyptians. But then notice that second thing and escape from the land. So he wants to keep them, but he wants to keep them under his control. So his two plans are this. One is to stop them multiplying, and secondly, stop them from escaping the land. It's pretty difficult, isn't it? 
When we know the very plan of God, God has actually said, I'm going to take you into Egypt. There I'm going to cause you to be fruitful and form you as a nation. We also know that God is going to cause them to escape from the land. The plans of the king of the, of the greatest nation at that point in time really are nothing in the scope of the almighty God. The way he hopes to achieve this is by setting over them taskmasters. Treat them harsh, give them work to do, help them build, get them out there building cities. In other words, what he's trying to achieve is let them know who is boss. Let them know who they belong to. They belong to us and they are serving and achieving our purposes. The plan didn't go so good, did it? Hoping to say, we're the boss, you exist to serve our purposes. In verse 12, we tell you exactly what the response was. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Didn't quite have the intended result, did it? The intended result was that the, was the Israelite people would be in fear of the Egyptians, that they would honour them, they would serve their purposes. But they continued to be fruitful. God's plan that they would be fruitful in the land continued to happen regardless of what the, the Egyptian king put in place. If the plan was to show who the real power was, which was the, the Egyptian king's idea, and who they would truly would serve, it did do that, just didn't do it the way uh, Pharaoh thought that it might do. Maybe they didn't use enough force. So he steps it up a notch. It's like, Notice how it says, and made them work ruthlessly as slave. Gets repeated twice there. Put them to work hard. Put them to work so hard that they are so dominated, so under our control that they will not be fruitful, that they will be bound to us, their life will be defined by us. Surely that's going to get a result. What an ultimate display of power and authority. But why put all your eggs in one basket, as they say? The plan goes that step further in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra and the other one is Pua. Guessing that's probably not on the top of your list of names of kids. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Now that's a pretty good plan if you want to stop them building up and forming an army, isn't it? He's basically said, every male child that is born, kill them. Because armies were formed by men in those days and exclusively by men. Mothers are probably also extremely happy that there's been advancements in the nature of birthing. Now the old birth stool used to be like a stone thing. You would sit there, out comes, out comes your baby. I can't imagine it would be the most comfortable way to go. I've never given birth, never will. But one thing I don't know is how they expected the midwives to carry this out in a way that was unnoticed. And as a mother, you have quite a strong bond to the fact that you've just given birth to a child. How do you do this without it being so obvious what you've done? But imagine and put yourself in their situation. What a daunting request. The king, the most powerful man in the most powerful nation at that point in time, commands you to kill male babies. How would you respond? It goes completely against your conscience. 
Now, this king, you see him almost presented as being an enemy of God in every way possible. He opposes the, the commandment of God to be fruitful and to multiply. He's asking the people to basically to look upon him as God, as though he is the, the king of kings. Now he even goes so far to presume that he has got the right to take lives, lives that are made in the image of God. But put yourself in, your own, in their own shoes, what would you do? A big, powerful, ruthless ruler commands you to do something totally against your conscience. And before you try your imagination, you go, well, if Malcolm Turnbull asks, well, he's not really a scary figure, is he? You don't think, oh, Malcolm asked me to do it. Imagine you're living somewhere else where it's a bit scarier. There would be a genuine and a real fear. So what did the midwives do? But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. See, they they put their life on the line. As much fear as they may have had of the Egyptian king who'd given them this command, they said, we fear God. Who you ultimately esteem, who you ultimately ascribe the most power and authority to, will determine who you think is the most powerful and who you most want to please. And as far as they were concerned, it was a total no-brainer. We fear God, we will do what is honouring to him, regardless of what is asked of us. Now that was a bold move. They'd be putting their life on the line. Reminds me a little of the words Jesus had to say when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can carry out can destroy both soul and body in hell. We're not to fear the temporary. We are not to fear the people of this world. We are to fear God. We are to honour him above all things. Remember when Peter was told that he's not to speak speak the name of Jesus ever again, it says, we must obey God, not man. These midwives knew who they belonged to. They knew who their God was and because they knew the splendour and the glory of who their God was, there is no way they were giving in to these requests of the king. They knew he must be honoured. He is God. He is our creator. He gives us our life and breath and everything. But imagine the fear that comes when the king wants to come and have a chat to you about it. And he summons them to give them an account and say, why did you do this? These were pretty bold ladies. Not only for refusing to give in to the king's command, but look at their excuses. It's got a degree of boldness in it as well. Say, us Hebrew women, they're nothing like your Egyptian girls. They're so sturdy and strong. They just have the baby and it's all been and done before we even get there. So not only is they answering to the king and saying, we haven't done what you're doing, saying, but our women are tougher than your women. We don't, they don't even need a midwife. It's all been and done. Whereas all your Egyptian women, all your huffing and puffing. I don't think they got that animated, but let's pretend they did. Now you can presume that's a lie. Because the very fact that there were midwives to the Hebrew woman suggests that they actually did um, help them out um, in their childbirth. 
But poor old King, imagine how he responds to that. These women, foreign women, won't do what he says. He thinks he's the ultimate authority and he can't even get foreign women to do what he says. And then in their response, almost make a mockery of him and his people. Then there's a big ethical question. Is God okay with lies? Because they, it's, it appears that what they've said is a lie. And then it says, and God blessed them. Doesn't sound like a very good fit, does it? One thing I think we need to notice there in Exodus chapter 1, nowhere does it say that the reason why God blessed them was because they lied. So if you think that's a, if you think Exodus 1 is a good excuse, um, I can lie, God loves that and he'll bless me for it, then I, I think you'll find that those words are nowhere to be found. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 21, it tells you specifically why God blessed them. It says God dealt well with them because they feared God. If you want a clear statement of what, what God thinks of lying, Proverbs 12.22 says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. So I don't think he's going to provide blessing because of the lie itself. But let's go back to the king's goal. He wants to stop them multiplying, stop them escaping. How's that going? So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So look at this. The king keeps stepping up the oppression harder and harder and harder, trying to assert that I'm the ultimate authority. And every step along the way, it is shown there is a king who is far above all rule and authority. This is the king who is to be feared. This is, this is the almighty God. And his plans cannot be undone by even the strongest men in this world. Regardless of the oppression, people continue to see God's faithfulness being carried out and brought out in their lives. So they continued to multiply and grew strong. Not only did the people on the whole, but even the midwives were blessed by God giving them families as well. At this point, it's worth just making a quick side note. No, this is not a chapter to say that if you have children, that's God's blessing. If you don't have God's children, that's not God's blessing. That's not the point that's, that's being made there at all. But even with increased oppression, treating them harshly, making them work ruthlessly as slaves, the people flourished because their identity was their God. And their faith was built upon trusting in him rather than how they saw their circumstances. They knew who they were. They knew who they belonged to. They proudly proclaimed, we belong to the King of Kings. That's who we are. We belong to the almighty God who does everything he sets out to accomplish. Nothing can change that. But it's also worth reminding that confidence that you might have knowing that you belong to the king of kings doesn't guarantee comfort in this life, does it? It didn't guarantee comfort for these people. It doesn't guarantee comfort for us. But it does guarantee a confidence if we truly know who our God is and what he has promised to us. So upset with his progress, the king turns to his own people saying, basically, any male babies born to the Hebrews, chuck them in the Nile River. you think you would have learnt by now, wouldn't you? No matter what you do, you cannot stand in the way of an almighty God. To give a little bit of context, if you go back to Genesis, God's even told them exactly what's going to happen when they go to Egypt. After 
God says to Jacob in Genesis 46.3, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. What God sets out to achieve, he will achieve. There is no higher power. There is nothing that stands in his way. That is the God that you and I belong to if we are, if we are in a relationship with him. Knowing who your God is and what he promised should and does change lives, change the way that we respond to situations. It changes the way that we perceive different things. There are two things I want to specifically draw out from Exodus chapter 1. The first is this. Your view of the future determines your present. Now it's very easy when you read through a chapter like this to think, it's okay, they're in slavery now, they're getting treated and really rotten, but I know that somewhere a few chapters later, or a number of chapters later, they are going to get delivered out of Egypt, everything's going to be sweet. But we need to remember that the people who are in this situation don't know how God is going to rescue them, do not know exactly how God is going to provide that salvation. What was keeping these people in this situation was knowing who their God was, knowing what he has promised and standing firmly upon that even when their circumstances looked absolutely woeful. That was enough to determine every single decision they made, every single way they perceived their circumstances. Now it's fair enough to say that, sure, had they known that how God was going to work to deliver them out of Egypt, that would have given them sort of a hope that they could endure that bit longer knowing what was coming ahead. But they didn't know that. Then on the other hand, think about that for ourselves. We do know our final goal. If we are in relationship with God, and by that I don't just mean if you have someone who's gone to church, if we have a relationship with God, that is that we've understood that we haven't honoured him in a way in which we should have honoured him, that we were deserving of death, that Jesus came to die that death on our behalf and by trusting that his death was satisfactory on our behalf and turned from living for ourselves to living for him, if we are in relationship with him, our future is certain and we've been told what it is. That we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, we will be around his throne, we will not struggle with sin, death, sickness anymore for all eternity. We know that is our final destination. And if we believe in the idea that the, that the Israelites would have been so much better going through this time knowing how God was going to provide for their deliverance, how much more should we, because knowing exactly what our future beholds? Like the struggle in which we live in, this broken world, we're in between two things. We're in between the point which we've been called to God, when God has made promises to us, and that moment when we will be with him face to face, no sin, no death, no hurt, no pain, nothing more. How much more does that help us and encourage us to endure in the middle of all of the struggles, and there will be struggles in this world? And the second thing I want to look at is, how do we view our circumstances? Now, the example I gave at the beginning of me being sick and getting sent out to the spare room, there's, there's very different ways you could look at it. Now, I could very easily be going, oh, poor old me, I'm doing this and this and this. You don't need the details, so they'll just have to be this and this and this. But put yourself into this particular situation. How would you describe it? If you were one of the Israelites in this time, you're there in Egypt, 
They keep ramping it up to you are being ruthlessly treated as slaves. How would you respond? Because it could be very easy to think, where's God? To be in that situation, where is God? He has promised that we're going to have all these offspring. He's promised we're going to be in the land. He's promised that he's going to be our God. Where is I don't see him doing anything. You can imagine that's a possible sort of thought to have. Does God even love me if here I am being treated by a slave under a foreign rule? Does God love me? The thoughts that someone could have. But what we see throughout the entirety of Exodus chapter 1 is God's faithfulness to his promises. God is sustaining them despite all of the things that are coming against them. They continue to be fruitful. They continue to multiply. They continue to be strengthened. They continue to see the outworking of those promises that he, that Abraham would have a multitude of an offspring. That they would grow as, as God had promised when they go into Egypt. That I will multiply you. I will form you into a nation. These things are unfolding. Sometimes we get so preoccupied with the negative things going on that we just do not see the positive things that God is doing. That's why I use that example. You could be very easily in this extra chapter one situation thinking, where's God? This is going on. I can't see God doing anything. Yet right in the middle of that, God was, was building upon and bringing out his promises to make them fruitful, doing the very things and protecting them and sustaining them, even while they were going under harsh treatment. So I'd encourage you, as you're looking at various things going on in your life, to look to see what is God doing. Now, I'm equally guilty that you you can see things going on and you, you see the negative stuff and you fail to see the little ways which God is providing for you. And sometimes we can't even see those things for ourselves. Sometimes we need to help one another see those things. So I'd encourage you to encourage one another when you can see God's blessings and God's work in other people's lives because often we don't see it ourselves because our natural tendency tends to be to see the negative things. But if our natural tendency is to focus upon the things that we think that we need or things that we think we're missing out on, look for what God is doing. Don't miss out and rob yourself of the joy of seeing what God is doing in the midst of those circumstances, but also in the big context of we can endure because we know what our future is. I love that wonderful promises of Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is doing a good work in those who are his people. We need to keep on seeking him. There are going to be times when we don't feel the slightest bit like seeking him. They're going to feel like, there are going to be times where it doesn't feel like to us like God's doing anything in our life at all. But if you're in relationship with him, he has promised that he will bring those things to completion, that he's going to complete that good work that he's begun within you. This is a God who can be trusted. Just like the Egyptian king couldn't thwart the plans of God. Neither can our circumstances that we face on a daily basis. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that we live in a broken world. We know there is pain. You you told us that there would be pain and suffering, hardship. You never promised that the being your people would mean that things would be simple or easy. Lord, it is right that we would bring before you the concerns that we have. But also, may we also 
Uh, help us to see the, even just the little blessings that you have given us, that we might place our focus upon the things that you are doing and the ways which we tangibly can see, see you working within our lives and in the lives of others. Lord, the, even just the fact that we're all here together, we're breathing in air. We're told that life and breath and everything comes from you. The fact that we're all dressed, the, the fact that we all have homes to go back to, the fact that we all have food. Lord, we, we are so thankful for everything you have provided us with. Help us to keep our minds upon the things that are truly important. Keep us from being distracted uh, from the things that might take our eyes off you. Help us to be satisfied in you and in you alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.